I'm joined on the Football CFB podcast today by a true footballing legend and, and anyone who remembers the era of Scottish football in the late 70s, early 80s will, will know who I'm talking about. Andy Ritchie, the King of Capelo, thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Callum. Lovely morning this morning to it is a lovely morning and I want to start by asking the obvious question. We're in a lockdown situation. There was a, a few stories. The club were put something out about yourself struggling with some of the symptoms of coronavirus. How are you coping with the lockdown and how are you feeling now? Yeah, well, it seems such a long time ago now, Callum. So it was about the beginning of the month and I had I had been doing some stuff. And it's funny enough, I'd been doing some stuff down at Capelo on the Saturday. That would have been the 7th of the month. And on the way back up home again that night, didn't feel particularly well, but I hadn't been right for a couple of days. Uh, by the time I'd got Sunday night, I was running a raging temperature, sore head, sore body, just felt totally and completely unwell. Uh, and let it go as you normally do, take a couple of paracetamols and, you know, and then by the Monday, I thought I really don't feel too good here. So obviously I'd made my phone call and, run through the uh, the diagnostics of the whole thing over the telephone and the young lady said, yeah, you're going to have to self-isolate yourself and, you know, do what you need to do. Paracetamol get in. If your condition worsens at all, uh, you're going to have to call us back and all that. So I had almost nearly two and a half weeks of that, Cal. Uh, and it's the strangest sensation ever. I've had the flu and I've had all these ailments over the years, but this was this was a different type altogether. You know, the symptoms were similar to what I'd experienced at flu, but a wee bit more severe on that, a lot more severe, in fact, you know. Uh, and to be honest with you, it was quite scary for a couple of weeks like that. Uh, and that's, that's almost about three and a half, four weeks ago, and I still have the traces of it running through me. I'm, you know, I was horrendously weak for the first 10 days to a fortnight after that, fatigued after sitting in the chair for an hour almost, you know, so uh, beginning to get back to some sort of normality again now, you know, I got up in the morning feeling a bit brighter and fresher, I'm not having to drag my feet through the day, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better, thank God. Well, as I say, that's really good to hear because there's nothing worse than, than not feeling yourself, especially during a lockdown situation, and, and that kind of leads me on to the next thing I want to talk to you about, Andy, it's Something that's close to my heart in terms of mental health. I've been through it myself. I've been open and honest about my story, and and I do some work with back onside the mental health charity um, to try and promote positive mental health. But you were recently on Radio Five Live talking about mental health in football. Um, could you do you mind just sharing that, that some of that conversation and some of the mental health challenges that came to you during your career and and are still prevalent in the game now? Yeah. Uh... Well, I had, I've lived with these, these issues as well as your good self. For, I think I, my first taster at this, and I didn't understand it, didn't know what was happening to me as, as a relatively young boy. Uh, and basically, I lived, I lived all my football career with these issues. And I, mean, I suffer from terrible anxieties. I have panic attacks, Callum, and incorporated attached to that is obviously a feral helping of depression from time to time as well. But when I discovered these things, or these things were happening to me at that time, you know, basically, I had nowhere to turn with them. I was unsure about them all. 
I didn't know what was happening to me. And these were the days going back into the probably just the early 70s when these things came on, you know, and football wasn't in the same place as it is now in regards to it. And the world wasn't in the same place as well. You know, the, these things were looked upon as being a slight on you and as much that uh, mental health wasn't spoken about, you know. Uh, certainly wasn't spoken about at football clubs at that time. So I, I had my whole career suffering from these uh, situations and you learn as a wee self-isolating self-analysis of all these things I certainly never I never spoke to a doctor about this till about 14 years ago uh, when my health had been particularly good as well and we're talking about things like that and I'm you know I did speak to him at that time I went in for some therapy at that time as well would you believe I was supposed to go for three months into therapy and I stayed nearly 11 months with them uh, to try and sort out issues in regards to this because it built up over the years and these issues unfortunately don't go away. You can manage them and I have done over the last almost for almost 40 years, maybe even 45 years or whatever. Uh, and now in these strange and scary times that we live in now, you know, 14 years ago when I when I I'd finished therapy for the first time round, you know, my therapist had told to me told me that, you know, I shouldn't go home and love in silence and I shouldn't go home and <coughs> excuse me, love with fear. And unfortunately, because of the scary world that we live in at this moment in time, that's exactly what my husband had to do again for the last four or five weeks. And it's not easy, you know, and my heart is out to people that suffer at the same time. And I did say when this whole thing started off that, you know, this was always going to be a problem to me. You know, my situation was that when I did start to feel situations came up, creeping up on me, I would uh, integrate with people and I would speak to people and I would discuss situations. Uh, and I threw these things all out in the open many years ago uh, to make sure that I didn't do that, didn't sit in isolation at any time at all, you know. But unfortunately, because of the way things are now, I'm having to deal with them all over again. And there's good days and there's bad days with them at the moment. Uh, and I suppose everybody's in the same boat. There'll be many, many more people than myself having to do this at this moment in time. But, you know, it does add to the, the anxiety and the confusion and the whole issue here, you know, what we're having to do because of the times that we live in. So it's not easy. But at the same time, you know, you've got to get a great big deep breath and get up and get on with it. This is the only game in town that we have at this moment in time. You know, uh, everybody's being told the same. We're all living under the same set of circumstances. So, you know, we just have to make, make good with it if we can do that at all possible. Totally agree. As you know, I'm open and honest in terms of anxiety, panic attacks, um, but we bouts of depression. As I say, I've been open with that. I've been there myself and when this situation started, Andy, I found myself in that circumstance and, and I've, I've tried to combat that, for want of a better phrase, by and manage it by just keeping myself as busy as possible with a podcast and, and other things as well. And something that you've been doing over the last year or so I want to talk to you about now, how you've been really keeping yourself busy before this lockdown started is you're back in at Morton doing the hospitality alongside Jerry McDade. What's it like being back in and around the club on a weekly basis? Well, these were all things that I had to really put myself out and do. I had been working quite considerably up until that time. Uh, and 
about a year and a half ago, I thought I would t- take a step back now. I know you don't believe it, Callum, but I'm 64 now. <laughs> uh, and about a year and a half ago, I thought I would maybe try and restrict my schedule a wee bit. Uh, and that's what, what I thought about doing then. And Morton kindly approached me and asked me if I would be prepared to, to get involved again doing the capital in some capacity. And uh, I did. I spoke to gentleman just mentioned there, Jeremy Dade, about it, and uh, I've been spending quite a considerable amount of time prior to the lockdown down there, doing the home games and travelling away to away games as well. Uh, I built up a nice relationship, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that with the manager, Davy Hopkin. I didn't know Davy particularly well prior to all this. He was obviously from a different generation down there. He's obviously younger than me as well, uh, but I got to know him quite well. And I like the fella. Uh, so that helps as well. Uh, and we'd, we'd spend some time together just shooting the breeze, talking about football, everything, life in general, and how he's, how he's uh, coping with situations down at Capolo and how he's had to move in there under different, difficult circumstances and try and build up a situation that's going to make Morton competitive in the Championship on a restricted budget. Yeah, he's a smart boy. He's been round about football for a long, long time. Yeah, and what he's basically was talking about was bringing the same template that he adopted at Livingston down to Morton. Very successful for Livingston. And he's hoping to bring that same template down with the same thought process and attitude towards football yeah, and install that at Capolo. Yeah, I think it's been difficult for him at certain times, but... You know, I think just towards Christmas time there, he was beginning to turn it around a wee bit and get his own ideas across and how he hoped that that was going to be successful for Morton. And I've enjoyed the time since the summertime spent down there with, with Davey and the rest of the staff down there. And it was great to get back to again and see old friends and, and meet new friends as well. Uh, and my life's been involved in about football for almost 50 years, Callum. So... You know, I'm at my happiest, I'm at my most comfortable, uh, and it helps with my own personal situations with the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm back down at Capolo again under the circumstances, and I'm really enjoying my spell back down there again. It's, it's nice to be back where you're comfortable and back where you've had happy times in, and, and people are always glad to see you, so that's... Uh, that's one of the main forces to that, you know, if people are glad to see you, it makes your day a wee bit better. Definitely does, in, in terms of the hospitality, I've, I've been in myself and, and seen you in there, I've had conversations with you in there, and and, and again, it's just it's clear to see how well you and Jerry are working together, The fa- it's also, <clears throat> pardon me, great to see how, again, as we know, you're, you're the Morton legend, the Morton legend, in the sense that every fan of every generation knows who you are, you're, you're, when you're brought up around Morton, you get told very early on who Andy Ritchie is and what he <laughs> achieved, and and what I want to ask you is, is about your relationship with Jerry. he recently said in, uh, when he was interviewing David McKinnon that the coronavirus is the only thing you've gave him the last two years, what's your response to that? Uh, there you go, that just shows you, Jerry. Jerry must be feeling comfortable around about me as well if he's cracking jokes like that, Callum, you know, <laughs> uh, I think, well... I met Jerry a few times and we did some things together. We did some uh, question and answer nights and, and evenings with. Uh, and we met about a couple of years ago and forged a, a, a nice friendship and a nice relationship. Uh, that hopefully that will go into the future as well. Uh, he's a guy that I like. 
He's a he's a green up man. He understands the situation and he understands Morton and he's a very professional man. So he's brought a lot to Capolo as well, I think. Well, I hope. And uh, I really enjoy my afternoons with him. And I really enjoy the fact that when you're down there in amongst 100, 120, 130 Morton supporters of an afternoon in the hospitality. And uh, I think it's a bit more vibrant. It's a bit more lively, I think, now. And people become uh, attached to it a bit more. They, certainly, the crowd certainly contribute to it. And it's always a strange sensation for me to come down because probably like yourself, there's a, there's a load of young people there now. And when they do come to speak or when I go around the tables to talk to people, they always start a conversation where my dad told me or my granddad told me. You know, that kind of conversation. And, you know, I think, I look at them and I think to myself, some of them are in their early 30s. And I think, you never seen me play down here. But they seem to know everything at all about what happened at Morton at that time. I think it was a legacy uh, that the Greenup people liked at that time and, and still like to keep it going now. There were good times, there were happy times, and we were a good team. They were good players who went on to have quite extensive careers in football, some of them still involved uh, in the managerial level now. And uh, like I, I, Everybody seems to think that I come from Greenup, Callum. That's another thing as well. You know, they always... When I'm away on holiday and I meet people elsewhere, they always ask me about either places, people, or situations in Greenup. Uh, and I, as you know, I don't belong to Greenup. Uh, <laughs> I have to tell them in the nicest possible way that I really don't know what they're talking about, you know. <laughs> uh, but these, like, these things are, as you said, yeah, that's a legacy that's left over. And it's nice to chat to people about it, and it's nice. But it's also nice to be there on the day of the game and bring it right up to date at this moment in time. See the players who are popular, uh, get involved with people who support the club on a weekly basis and hear what their hopes and aspirations are for the future as well. And it's it's, it's, it's a nice warm Saturday afternoon uh, spent, as I said before, with, with old friends and new ones as well. I never come away from it feeling anything other than having had a great day. And hopefully the people that come along for hospitality or come along for the games like that feel a wee bit like that themselves. Well, the reviews, as I say, I've spoken to Jerry about this and yourself. The reviews I've seen, one of my good friends has been to the hospital. Usually they take a table every year and, and he said it's the most enjoyable experience he's had of the hospitality since he's been going. So you both of you are definitely doing lots of things right. And, and I want to come on to Morton soon, but the obvious question is, for you, Andy, you mentioned the fact that lots of people think you're a Greenock boy and you were born in Greenock, but as you've said, it's not true as much as as much as much we'd like to claim you down here. You were a Bells Hill boy. What was your upbringing like? Who were your footballing heroes? And what was football like for you as a youngster? Yeah, well, everybody seemed to play football out here in Bells Hill. I'm back home again, living here now. I've been back home about a year and a half and... Uh, my my early years here were spent in amongst that heavy industrial area uh, in Belso where there was a, an awful lot of football played. But it seemed to be at that time in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, everywhere had football pitches and every football pitch was full of young boys playing football. Uh, my early years were, you know, Belvedere primary, primary school here in Belso. My head teacher and my teacher for a couple of years there was none other than Craig Brown. Uh, and he used to look after the football team at that time. So 
I was well looked after and well coached at an early age like that. Uh, Craig became headmaster at Belvedere. I moved on to Belsall Academy and played for the academy team and my local YMCA team. I was lucky enough to be noticed a few times there, but then again, I think most of the scouts in the west of Scotland spent half their life in Belsall looking for football players. The first team that I played for with Belsall YMCA had about six or seven boys in the team who were snapped up by professional clubs north and south of the border. Uh, so I was lucky enough to be one of them. Uh, could have some decent players amongst them. Big Jim Chico Hamilton, who moved on to Sunderland and played for, for many years at Sunderland. Uh, the young fella called Jim Wynn, who came with me to Celtic at that time when I joined Celtic. The guy called Jim Fleming, who moved from Belsall to Manchester United and eventually came back up home again. So there was a, half a dozen out of that team that went on to have a professional career, uh, obviously with professional clubs. So, you know, there was always a great buzz about Belsall in, in regards to football. And they said either all your brothers or all your friends actively took part in it seven days a week. It wasn't as structured then, but it was uh, in regards to, to, to organised football. Most of your football was played at the local public park or at the front of your own house, you know. But uh, they were happy days, they were good days. You know, as a young boy, I, I travelled and did all that. Going round English clubs, Manchester United, Crystal Palace, West Brom, Middlesbrough, Sunderland, Newcastle United, Celtic, Rangers, you know, all these all these teams were running about and I you know, I spent some time down south, a week, maybe ten days at a time down there with the clubs. And I was training here as a youngster on the Tuesday night at Celtic Park and travelling to Ibrox to train on the Thursday night prior to signing for for, for any club. So you know, that had lasted about a year or 15 months doing that. And I eventually chose to go to Celtic. Because at that time, Celtic had the, had the best system for young players that I felt at that time. And I felt quite comfortable at, at Celtic Park on a Tuesday night training with... Um, the coach at that time was a, a Celtic legend for some of your older listeners, a fellow called Willie Fermi. And uh, he looked after all the young boys who were... S-form signings at that time and uh, I really began to, to enjoy the place and, and get comfortable with it and uh, I ended up signing as an S-form signing for Celtic at that time. I moved on from there and spent a year at Celtic Boys Club which in footballing terms were, were happy years but it's now progressed over the years that they weren't, they weren't as happy off the park as they were on the park. I've happy memories of my football there but Unfortunately, over the years I've been on, I've been unhappy memories of some of the stuff that's went after. Uh, and progressed my way through Celtic Boys Club to Kirkintalk Rob Roy. And I had six months there as a provisional signing, played a couple of reserve games, managed to get myself into the Scotland youth team a couple of years younger than I should have done. And from there, I played about half a dozen reserve team games while playing at Rob Roy and did reasonably well. I must have done reasonably well because... They called me up and made me a full-time player at Celtic at 17, which at that time was relatively unheard of. You know, you had to do your couple of years in the, in the juniors and, and then maybe even as a part-time player playing for the reserves before you ever got a look at full-time. So I was lucky that way. So my career progressed quite quickly in respect to being a 14-year-old boy to 17. I crammed in a lot in those three years. But they were good years, they were happy years, 
I enjoyed them and it was certainly great to at that time when I went in to play at Celtic Park at 17, the reserve team, there was maybe three or four at any one time. Lusman Lang still playing there. You know, and, and you know, being in and round about that and being part of that and getting to know the boys by playing in the reserve team with them was, was a big, big thrill. I must admit, you know, that they days were, were exciting days. And that was the times where when the first team played at Celtic Park, the reserves played the reverse fixture. So if we played Aberdeen at Celtic Park, you played Aberdeen at Petaudry, three o'clock kick-off on the Saturday. So the boys who weren't going to be used at Celtic Park in the first team were sent away with the reserves in the morning to go and play. So, you know, you were, you, you had to be a little bit special, if that's the right word, to, to be able to get a game in that team because Celtic's first team squad at that time would be 21-22. So there was always maybe six, seven or eight players available to play in the reserve team who were recognised first-team players. So it was a great education, you know. I'm sorry all the years when I've seen what's happened to Scottish football and a lot of other football, you know, we have this, which was obviously, a, could have been a, a great idea at the time, a youth team set up. But when I looked at it, all the youths in that system were playing each other from under 14 right up to under 19 sometimes. All the same players playing for all the same teams. Whereas the reserve team you were having to play men's football in, in a man's environment because the guys that were coming back to play with the reserve team wanted to play well that day. They wanted the team to win so that they'd be looked upon as being potential first-team players next week. Uh, so there was, was a pressurised situation attached to it and I learned the majority of my football uh, at the early days by playing with, with Celtic reserves and, and, and a team full of first-team players more or less. You mentioned the Lisbon Lions and the fact that you you got to play with some of them. Jock Steen, obviously, at the club as well. The, what was the Lisbon Lions legacy like? I know it was only a few years after they had won the European Cup, but what was the feeling around the club having having achieved so much in terms of being the first British club to win the European Cup? Was that talked about a lot? Was there a kind of air or a, an aura in the air around these guys? Without a doubt. There was a massive presence from that at Celtic Park. <clears throat> I signed as an S form schoolboy uh, three weeks after Celtic had lost in the 1970 European Cup final. Uh, so, you know, going in and being round about the place, I joined the ground staff about seven or eight months after that. And the likes of, you know, John Clark, Bobby Murdoch, Jimmy Johnston, Bobby Lennox, these, these, these players were all still there at that time. Uh, and still playing in the first team, but Big Jock was changing the team about again. There was a new batch coming through. You know, you had, you had guys like Davy Hay and uh, Kenny Dalgleish, Lou McCarry, Sir Davidson. These guys were all pushing their way through to come into the first team to replace the Lisbon Lions that had left. So there was always a great aura about the place, you know, because we still had Lisbon Lions about the place, you know, so it was. They were, they were exciting times, you know. It was, a, it was a set of circumstances that, you know, you had to produce your very best, even as a 17-year-old boy, to, to get even a second glance at Celtic Park. And the bar was very, very high, and you were always striving at an early age to try and climb up to get to get up to that bar. And always great encouragement to people around about and, Developed a nice relationship with a fella called Tommy O'Hara who passed away about a year ago there. And Tommy lived in View Park, not too far from me. 
And in the mornings when I was going full time, we used to get a run with we wee Jimmy in the morning. <laughs> we didn't have cars at that time. Everybody was on the bus, Calum. Uh, and uh, I, I, I managed to get out of view park, get a run in in the mornings, waiting outside the paper shop for wee Jimmy to come and pick us up to take us in in training. And they were, you know, I got to know Jimmy really well. It stopped after about five months, right enough, when uh, Jimmy started to, <laughs> started to appear later and later to pick us up in the morning. And we'd be driving along that, that London road in the morning when the players were running up to Barrafield some mornings. Jimmy had struggled to get out of his bed, you know. And uh, that, that came to an abrupt halt. Big Jock came in and put that to a stop, you know. And, and we were back on the bus again uh, to make sure that we got there in plenty of time. And uh, we, Jimmy, wasn't keeping us awake. So it was, you know, I developed a nice relationship with Jimmy. knew Jimmy all for the rest of his life after that. You know, it was great to be around about these guys. These guys just typified what was going on at Celtic Park. You were never allowed to lose a game, my friend. That's that's where I, I learned that adage that you know every game had to be played. It had to be played the Celtic way, and it had to be played to win. And and that that was given to everybody that walked in through the door. It wasn't just for specific people. That was a, that was everybody that had to get into that that way of thinking and that attitude towards playing football. But it was important to play it. It was important to play it well. It was important to show how how you could play the game. But the most important part of all that was that you had to win the game. It didn't always happen. You can't win every game, but you know that was the adage for every game. As soon as one game was won, you moved on to the next. And again, as soon as one game was lost, you moved on to the next as well. The next game had to be won all the time. For, for yourself, Andy, being a Bells Hill boy, as you say, growing up, playing in the street, then having lots of trials, signing for Celtic, getting through the reserves, playing and getting to know guys like Jimmy Johnson... What was it like when you made your debut? Were you nervous at all or did you back yourself because you'd been around the club and been around Lisbon Lions and Jockstein and, and get settled in? Uh, I remember the day I turned up. It was the good old days when the lists went up for the teams on a Friday on the dressing room wall. And when I noticed at the bottom, number 16 was my name. Well, there you go. I'm being asked to come along. I'm not going with the reserves tomorrow. I'm being asked to come along because you were responsible for making sure that the players, the young players at that time, had what they needed. The kit man would leave out everything, but if they needed their studs changed, they needed boots changed, they needed a towel, they needed slips, you were about the dressing room. A 16th man normally to do that. And I thought, well, something different. I'll get to watch the game and be around about the park that day. And it wasn't until I turned up at two o'clock and I met, I met the late Jim Brogan outside who was, I think he was 15th on the list that day. Brogan met me at half past one as we came in and he said to me, I think you're taking part today. And normally the carry-on was to wind up young players at that time at Celtic <laughs> Park, you know. And I never thought for a minute, you know, well, it was a passing thought that I might very well be involved. And... Uh, thought, well, there you go, we'll see what happens out of this, but I'm expecting to, to hear my name, you know, well, well down the, the list when they're reading, reading team out. And then when they read the team out, there was only one substitute at that time, and I was number 12 that day. And he read the team out, and everybody started to move about as they normally do in the dressing room at that time. And I thought, for me, he's read my name out. But I thought, 
And I said to Danny McGrain, I said, Danny, did, ah, you're number 12, he says to me. Oh, God's sake, you know. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. And I started off by getting myself ready and doing all the things that I would normally do. And, but still, it was a bit of a surreal atmosphere. And then about 10 minutes to three, I, start, I started to get this horrible feeling in my stomach eh, in regards to what was happening. And I felt a wee bit of a panic attack coming on, not for the first time. And eh, I remember thinking at that time, see if Jockstein had walked over to me at that time and put his hand on my shoulder and said, Andy, I was only kidding you on. Just put your gear back on again. For the five minutes, I would be quite happy for that. To go away and organise myself in the bathroom and, and do what I had to do. And uh, once I got out on the park, I was fine. It was no problem. I'd done the warm up with the players and I come back to the dugout. Uh, and I eventually got on with 25 minutes of the game to go. Made a wee bit of an impression when I went on and felt quite buzzed about it after it, you know. And, and after that, I'd taking part in about four or five games. I made my full debut about four weeks after that against Dundee United at Celtic Park. And we won two one. I really enjoyed it that day. You know, I was I was back. I was in training with the first team every morning now, and things were beginning to progress very quickly. And I really enjoyed it. It was a great great buzz at that time. But I remember if we had a team that day, five minutes before kick off, and said to me, with well, the way I felt at that moment in time, and I was lucky. With that situation, it didn't happen to me too often after that in my professional life. Uh, that, that that horrible feeling of anxiety to know that you were going to be playing your first first team game. Uh, but it was it was a great experience and the rest of the first team players did what they normally did with, with young players that were coming in anyway. They looked after you to a certain extent. You know, all you were asked to do was what you had been doing every week when you came into the, the club. There were no great expectations you were you were there, you were there merit for what you'd done and you just had to go out and show what you could do to the, the 30, 35,000 people that are there watching the game. In terms of, this is a question I'm just interested to ask because you look at football now and, and we know for obvious reasons through the cost of football and things, the crowds are, are smaller than they once were, especially for clubs like Morton. But see when you play for Celtic, as you said, they still get massive crowds now, but did you prefer Andy playing in front of a massive crowd? Is that when you felt you rose to the occasion? Yeah. Well, normally the crowds were always greater at Celtic Park. And even at that time, I remember we played some of the Rangers reserve team games were played in front of 20, 23,000 people. You know, you could you could play Rangers in a reserve game at Ibrox and there 19,000 people on a Saturday at 3 o'clock while they're the old firm game was going on. And every single one of them had a radio stuck to their ear while they were watching the game. It was before live television, it was before Sky and all that. So, you know, and you come back to play Rangers and sometimes in a midweek game at Celtic Park and I was there game of 20-odd thousand. So, you know, I was I was quite used to that. And, it, it, yeah, I, I enjoyed playing in front of the big crowds. I no doubt about that. We played a, I remember playing a game against Leeds United. United went out early uh, European Cup one year and so did Celtic and we organised a, a game at Celtic Park and there was 45,000 people at it uh, for a friendly game and you know I played that that day and I think I played well because I played the following week after that again so yeah I, I enjoyed playing the front, and it, 
the Celtic Park crowd always gave young players a chance, an opportunity. They realised how important it was to the individual. They weren't in the process of destroying people's career maybe before it started. You know, at that time, and I say it now, and it's maybe, maybe not the right thing to say, you know, you've got a football match now for 60,000 out of 40,000 critics. At that time, there didn't seem to be that adage around about Celtic Park. But, you know, when you played, you were a young player playing, the crowd were encouraging you to do as well as you possibly could. Uh, and that, that, that always made, a, uh, made it easier for the, for the younger player coming in, you know. And uh, again, I see it, the first team players looked after you. You know, the players who played and who were established players and big-time players at Celtic Park always spent a bit of time to look after the, the young fella that was coming into the team. Because it was relatively young. You know, guys like Kerry Dalgleish and Danny McGrain didn't make their first team debut until they were 20, sometimes 21. And some people didn't make it until they were in their 20s in the first team. You know, I was, I was playing in the first team. I think I was 17 in the February and I think I played in the March of that year. So, you know, there was a there was a, a guy before we had played as well, a fella called Brian McLaughlin, uh, who had been at Celtic Park. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago there. And, and he was the he was the kiddie. He was the the young up and coming next superstar at Celtic Park. He unfortunately got a very bad injury, an injury very similar to what Ian Jermaine had later on in his career. That halted Brian's career, you know. Medically, that halted his career. The operations for that injury at that time weren't as prevalent as they were 20 years later. And uh, Brian, unfortunately, suffered because of that. He, he, actually, he actually suffered with it, but at the same time, many years after that, he was first division player of the year for Air United. He got a transfer to Motherwell in a cloud for £100,000, which was a lot of money. And really, Brian used to say after that, you know, he really only had one and a half legs because of the injury that he had had to his knee. So you can imagine what kind of player he'd have been if he had been given a, a fair crack at it with a fair wind at his back. And he had been in the team before me, so between myself and Brian McLaughlin, we were the two young players that were hopefully going to be Celtic's future at that time. And we got a load of help. We got a load of help from, from everybody at Celtic Park because we were relatively young at that time uh, to help you come in and play. What I want to ask you about, Andy, is you've talked over the years, you've, you've, you've written books and you've talked about your relationship with Jock Steen. Do you feel that you got a fair crack of the whip at Celtic overall? Uh, well, I have mentioned it in a couple, a couple of books that have been done. My relationship with Big Jock up until the time he's accident was very, very good. He had had me in around about the team. He had made sure I was involved in things. I was in a first-team pool when I was 17, more or less. And any opportunity he did to give me, any time he had an opportunity to give me a, a game, he did. I had a great relationship with him at that time. And after, after his car crash, his near-death car crash like that, you know, things changed a wee bit. It was a long time out. Unfortunately, I was suffering a wee bit more at that time because uh, the people at Celtic Park who had come in at that time to, to look after the team and do it well, Big Jock was recovering for that. You know, had other ideas for, for the place. He brought in some of their own players. 
you know, they, they brought in other young players and, and more or less gazumped me a wee bit, you know, and I was put back to pecking order again and I developed a horrendous attitude towards all that, you know. I was I was probably physically I was able to handle playing in the first team at seventeen. But mentally I wasn't able to handle that. Uh, and I developed a terrible attitude towards all that and terrible attitude towards Celtic and Celtic Park. Uh, and I found my myself working my way back rather than making the steps forward. And by the time Big Jock had come back after his accident, you know, I'd spent maybe 15, 17 months like that. And I'd worked my way down the pecking order. And by the time he came back again, well, I think, you know, it's, he wasn't, it would be unkind to say he wasn't the same man when he came back again because of, because of the car accident. You know, his attitude towards me changed a wee bit towards that as well when he'd seen how far down the pecking order I'd fallen. And they gave me a hard time here. Uh, but I think interspersed with that hard time was the fact that he was hoping that I would pick up the mantle again and go ahead and go back and get back quickly to where we had been before. And unfortunately, that, that wasn't really happening. My attitude didn't allow that to happen at that moment in time. And I think at the end of it all, you know, when Morton did come in for me, uh, I think he'd become horrendously frustrated with me. And, you know, well, I basically needed to get out to play football again, or I would have found myself on, maybe even on the scrap heap at 1920. Uh, the day that I signed for Morton, he offered me a new four year contract. And I turned it down. When I look back and it's not really a very wise idea. You know, when that came along, I should maybe have hung in a bit longer and, and, and maybe give myself a wee bit more time to get back into the routine again. But I didn't. Uh, I, took, I took the move because I basically wanted to get back to some sort of guarantee of playing football every Saturday. I'd spent too long sitting on the sidelines and felt that my career was going nowhere. And I... My, my my thought process at that time was I'd maybe have to take maybe a step backwards to take two steps forward. Uh, and, you know, at that time I thought, well, Morton coming along like that. I'd spoken to Benny a few times. Benny was a was a, an up-and-coming, promising up-and-coming manager. And, you know, he was trying to do things at, at Capelo and I used to speak quite comprehensively to him about it prior to coming down. And I liked Benny. And that seemed to have been an adage. That seems to have been an adage all my life. You know, when I played football, I really got to like the people that I'm involved with, that I play with, and I'm managed by, and it helps my game. You know, and I took the opportunity to, to do that. That's November 1976 when I moved to Celtic and, and moved to Morton. But as I say, I took it as being one step backwards in the hope of taking two steps forward. Because anybody I spoke to about that told me, if you go to Morton, you play well. And you do okay, you'll get a move. <laughs> you know, that was, that was the order of the day. You go down and play your football again and all things being equal, you'll be able to maybe even get, make that step back up again. Something that intrigues me, Andy, is what were your first impressions of Morton when you arrived? Your first impressions of Greenock? Your first impressions of Capelo? Because you obviously had came from Celtic working under Jock Steen, playing alongside some of the Lions, J- Jimmy Johnson, etc. So... How did Morton compare and what was your initial reaction when you arrived? Uh, I mean, I really didn't know much about Morton at that time. You know, my only real introduction to them was in the, the occasions that me and Benny would sit down together. Benny's wife had a hairdressing shop in Canvas Wang 
and uh, my girlfriend at that time worked in the optician shop directly above it. So we used to meet each other in the mornings when we were dropping the ladies off before we went to before we went to our own our own job, me at Celtic Park and, and Benny to Morton. Uh, so we used to sit as people did at that time on the bonnet of their cars for twenty minutes and Benny would tell me how things were going at Morton and I would pull him in a wee bit of what was happening at Celtic Park. Uh, the only other thing I knew about Morton was that my all-time hero, because when I was a kid, me and my dad used to go every second Saturday to Motherwell, who were my local team. My dad was a fanatical supporter, and I used to go along as a kid as well. And when I'd read Morton's team, I saw a name in it. I saw a name of Goldthorpe, John Goldthorpe. And John Goldthorpe was my hero at Motherwell when I'd be about 11 or 12, going with my dad to the football. And uh, I thought to myself, that would be great. I was quite excited about that, going to play with the legend is Big Goldie. And really, that's about as much as I knew about Morton. You know, it was nothing other than that. I had signed on the Wednesday morning and Morton were playing Clyde Bank on the Wednesday evening uh, in a midweek game. And Davy Cooper was playing with Clyde Bank at the time. Uh, that shows you how long ago it was, eh? 1976. And uh, I travelled down to Capelo and that was in the the days before motorways and everything else like that. So the midweek journey took about two and a half hours. And I thought, well, that's not a very good idea, you know. I travelled through some weird and wonderful places like Renfrew and, and, and you know, Kilmacombe and all these places to get down to Capelo. Uh, and I turned up that night and I remember we went into the boardroom first, get things sorted out. And then I remember coming along the tight corridor at the back of the dressing rooms at Capelo. And I remember meeting John Goldthorpe, funny enough, walking down. And I had met him two or three times before at social occasions up here in this area, Mullerwell and Delks Hill. And we also had a mutual friend, a fellow called Jim Gilmer. And Goldie met me on the corridor. He said to me, Andy, how are you doing? And I'll never forget, I had a green herringbone jacket on and, and a, a light shirt with a sort of green tie. So maybe he thought I was still at Celtic. He said, what are you doing down here? I said, I signed this afternoon, Goldie, I'm I'm playing the night. He says, what the hell did you sign down here for? And I remember thinking, <laughs> that's not a very good start. I thought to myself, God, see, he's playing the team. What did you come down here for? I said, well, I come down to get some games and see how it goes. He said, all right, I'll catch up with you later on. And we did, we met in the dressing room after that. But I remember my first my first recollection was big goalie asking me why, you know, why did you do it? Uh, we played that night and drew nil-nil. And then the following Saturday, we went to Love Street to play Alex Ferguson and St. Brum, who were a good team. They were top of the league at that time, and they knocked us about like a rag doll. We beat us 5-1 at Love Street that day. And I remember driving home in the car thinking, I don't know if I've made the right decision here. I don't know if I've done the right thing. Coming here, and under the circumstances, it's going to, it looks as if it's going to be a bit of a struggle. But in the intervening months after that, in fact, if I could have, after that Saturday game at Love Street, if I could have driven my car back on the Monday morning back into Celtic Park and apologised, I said, listen, can we, can we rewrite that again? Can I come back in here again and I'll go on with what I need to do? And You know, I've made a mistake going to Morton, but the deed had been done by that time, Callum, so I couldn't. But in the intervening few months after that, you know, things happened at, at Capelo eh, up until around about the Christmas time. And a couple of players had let the club down. We went to play a game in Montrose 
and a few of the players that had travelled up overnight because the weather was so bad going to Montrose at that time of the year. We'd, we were in a hotel the night before and some of the boys had misbehaved. And uh, it came to the attention of the manager. And within the week after that, I think we could be 3 2 at Montrose. I think about the week after that, Barry had got ready four or five players there that should have maybe moved on a wee bit before. Uh, and he brought in other players as well. Uh, and from then on in, from about the December, January time of 1976, stroke 77, to the end of that season, you know, we brought in young players as well. We brought in guys like John McNeil, uh, big Joe McLaughlin coming around about George Anderson had got himself back fit again. Uh, we brought in other players to come back in. We had a young we had a young player down there at that time, a young boy called Mark McGee, who all of a sudden started to blossom around about that time as well, and I played up front with Mark. And he was a good player. He was in the reserves at that time. He had came in, Benny gave him his chance. And from there to the end of the season, the whole structure and situation changed at Capolo. I think we went on an unbeaten run there, so many games, I think about 15, 17 games or something like that, which would have been unheard of at the start of the season. Then he was now beginning to get players in that he wanted, and he was beginning to put a structure down. I think very similar to what maybe David Hopkins wanted to do at the start of last season down there. Uh, but at that time, Benny brought good players in, and we got on ourselves, on ourselves for a run to the end of the season, and the following season. You know, we're lucky enough to, to do particularly well with 77-78 season. But that had all started in the December, just before Christmas, the 76, when we managed to move on, as I said before, four or five players that should have moved on before and got new players in. And it wasn't any transfer windows at that time. You could bring them in at any time throughout the whole season. And that certainly helped us. And the situation at Morton changed for me in about six weeks, uh, I started to feel comfortable. The quality of the team was good. We're getting results and we're beginning to build something, which was important. You mentioned the importance of building momentum and stuff like that there. What I want to ask you about is Benny Rooney himself. I want to ask you about the relationship you had with him while you were at Morton. You'd said that through the, the hairdressing shop and, and through the opticians with the, the ladies at the time, you, you had many conversations before you started working together. What was it like when you did work with them and what was that relationship like over the years? Uh, I mentioned earlier on that I, you know, I thought he was one of the, the young progressive managers that were coming through the game. Benny had a great idea of the game. Uh, he'd be brought up in a football family. His dad had played and was a physiotherapist. In fact, he was a physiotherapist for the Lisbon Lions. Bob Rooney. Then he had had a career at Celtic Park himself and uh, St Johnston. And had played right up until his mid-30s. In fact, he played a few games when I came to Capital at first. For Morton. Uh, and I have built up quite a good relationship with Benny. Because at that time, he more or less had said to me, you know, I'm going, where do you want to play? That type of conversation, you know. And then discovered that probably my attributes were for to play basically wherever I wanted. He gave me the adage that I would go wherever the ball would go. You know, and he encouraged the other players to make sure that I seen enough of the ball to maybe to be able to, to make an influence in the game. Uh, 
I wouldn't say they overburdened me with tactics or anything like that. But it just encouraged me to go and do what I could do. You know, score goals, make goals, play, get the ball, pass the ball. All my strengths Benny asked me to play to, and that suited me at that moment in time. And also as well, you know, he, he brought players through at Capelo at that time, gave them a chance in the first team, made the club an awful lot of money, got the club into the Premier League, kept them there for almost five seasons, uh, sold off a lot of players in that, in that time as well, and replaced them with the good players as well. Uh, Benny was very, very good for Morton. It was also very good for me as well. Towards the end of our, our time, both our spells at, at Capital it sort of uh, went westward a wee bit then, you know. But that was just because of the situation. We weren't winning as many games as we were used to winning. And, uh, and, and he had an opportunity to go to Partick Thistle at that time and, and declined that opportunity and stayed at Morton. But the problem that Benny had, and the major problem, the only one criticism I could basically handle, uh, as far as Benny was concerned, was that we were all part-time, Callum. The club had always promised that if we got to the Premier League, we would go full-time. And then that changed. They said, well, if we could stay a year in the Premier League, we'll go full-time the following year. You know, and Benny was basically working with guys and having to compete and go to places like Ibrox and Celtic Park and Aberdeen and all the rest of them, with one hand tied behind his back because... We had part-time players. If we had a midweek game, we had five or six boys who worked in Lithgow's. We're having to get away from the work early in the afternoon to go home and get changed to come in and go and play a game at Celtic Park or Love Street or Kilmarnock or sometimes even Aberdeen. Uh, so he was always working behind the eight ball, Benny. And I think if he had been given the opportunity to take the club full-time bring in the players that you want, because there's no doubt about it, we were a good team with good players, but we would have we been better if we could have had the right amount of time to prepare and go over games and allow Benny to work a wee bit more on the training ground. Tuesday and Thursday night, and the bad weather consisted of running around the track at Capo, that was it. Uh, so he, he, took, he took that team and he took the, the team and individuals as far as he possibly could, Benny, and he got results got a relative amount of success for the club uh, but was always was always hindered by the fact that we were never full time uh, and I, I think that that annoyed him as well it certainly annoyed the players because every time he asked us to produce to get full time football we did it uh, we were getting to quarter finals semi finals or cup games unfortunately in a couple of semi finals we should have got to the final we didn't do it we kind of froze a wee bit and I remember, I remember playing Aberdeen in the League Cup semi-final at Hamden, and we got a couple of days off to go and prepare at Inverclyde at Largs. And I remember the problems that guys had because I was working part-time. You know, I was working full-time and playing part-time. I was working in the meat market in Glasgow, and it, you know, I was having to go to them and ask for three or four days off to prepare for a cup semi-final against Aberdeen. Uh, and I remember the rest of the players doing likewise as well. It was very, very difficult to do that. It wasn't the way it was now. You know, I'd go into the meat market and ask for three or four days off to play for Morton. There were Celtic supporters in the meat market. They couldn't give diddly squat <laughs> about Morton. And there was me having to ask 
and wait for a week before I could get word through from the boss at the meat market that I could get a few days off, but they wouldn't pay me for it routine. You know, there was always those problems. Uh, having to go away from work early to go to midweek games and all that. It's a major problem. Penny would have, would, have, would have had more success, and they did have a great amount of success at Capital if they had been able to get a squad of players who were going to be full-time. I always felt that that was a wee bit of a letdown for them. You mentioned the fact it was a letdown and he could have had more success, but one of the things that really interests me about your time at Capolo is the fact that <clears throat> I recently interviewed Willie Miller, obviously Aberdeen icon, Gothenburg great, and he said that the stadium he hated playing at and the stadium that now still lives with him has is, is been a bogey ground as Capolo. And he just he said with yourself, he said, every time we came down to Capolo under Alex Ferguson, we just thought, oh, here we go, Richie's going to get us again. <laughs> yeah, that seemed to, we seemed to have a wee bit of a curse on Aberdeen at that time. Yeah? I think between Aberdeen and Partick Thistle, they were the two teams that we seemed to, to, to have a lot of success against. You know, Aberdeen, Aberdeen were a right good team, a right good team with good players. But so were we at that time. And we took up the mantle whenever the big teams came round about the Aberdeen, the Rangers or Celtic to to at least give them a game. Uh, and, you know, I remember Lily Alex, Mark McGee had gone to Aberdeen by that time as well. They had Steve Archibald, they had Jim Layton, they had Gordon Strachan, you know, team that went on to win the, basically went on to win the European Super Cup, you know, and, and, and won the, you know, the European, the European Championship. So, you know, they, they were good players. But I remember that time I used to socialise a wee bit when Mark would come down, Mark McGee to see his mum and dad and we'd, we'd have a bottle of beer together and I'd find out what was happening in his life and he'd find out what was going on in mine's and I, I remember him saying that. He says our bus used to come from Aberdeen and the bus was always bouncing and plenty of jokers in the park, big Neely Cooper and all these boys. He says we'd go to Ibrooks in Celtic Park, he says we'd be the bus would drop outside Celtic Park and Ibrooks and we'd be bouncing again to get started and got on with the game there. You see, we come down to Capital and see by the time the bus drove by Glasgow Airport, you could hear a pin drop in it. Everybody collectively thinking, God, here we go to Capital again. And Jim Leighton up the back of the bus, shuffling his hands around a bit and nervous perplexed, you know, about having to come to Capital again. So, you know, that used to make me laugh when Mark told me that. At least we were making an impression. You see, we come along that road one road into green up and the one road out and we think, God, I wonder what's going to happen here in the day. I wonder what's going, what the game's going to be like. And I wonder what this big bugger Andy Ritchie's going to get up to the day, you know. I annoyed, it annoyed him, but I think it annoyed Alex Ferguson a wee bit more, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And in terms of yourself, Andy, your style of play, you're, as I say, the, the king of capital, everybody, as we talked about earlier, whether it's your, your dad, your grandfather, it, it tells people in the younger generation like myself and people that are even younger about your skills. We're, we're lucky to have clips on YouTube that we can watch. Obviously, nowhere near enough TV back then as there is now, but your your time at Morton was was absolutely legendary. The goal against Alan Ruff, something that you wind them up about even to this day? Yes, aye. I never let them forget it. It's the only thing I've got in Tapia. I mean, he's got the... He's got the hundred Scottish caps and so many World Cups and you know played with big clubs and did it all you know but I can I can cool his jets just by mentioning that goal or a couple of goals that were scored against him at Capital you know uh, I think the first year it happened 
I'm right off his Christmas card list right enough and I don't think I ever went back <laughs> on it again. Uh, Ruffy, Ruffy's my pal. He'll always be my pal. Uh, when I, I'd, I'd have swapped my career for Ruffy's any day of the week, you know. Uh, so many World Cups in Argentina and everything else that went along with it. And I think, I think he dated a few Miss Worlds in his time as well, you know. Flashing header, 
and you know, I'd forgotten about it till about three or four months ago there again when we had a, an old pal of mine down as a guest for the corporate that day, Jim Holmes, the captain of the team at Morton for many years, was a long servant at Morton, great player for Morton. And he reminded me of that hat trick. He remembered it. I could remember it as well that day when he told me about it. But I, I think about you know other games as well where you would you would have great games. You know we had plenty fifteen thousand people playing Hearts in the capital. You know they were they were fantastic games. They were games that you know people in Greenock were getting really excited about. It was an exciting time down there for about nineteen seventy seven right through to about the start of the eighties. You know three or four seasons where we were not only competing with the big boys. You mentioned the fight beating the big boys, you're, you're competing with them. That was shown in terms of <clears throat> the form you had. You were the top scorer in the top flight. You were also the player of the year as well. How how good did that make you feel? And at that point, did you think, this is a chance I might get a move to full time? I'll get into the Scotland squad. I'll, I'll make my full international yeah. debut. Yeah, they were exciting times for me. I'd thought to myself if I can have a good season, my first season in the Premier League. Because I did okay if I had went down, I'd scored goals in the first division in the Championship. But there was always a nagging doubt for people at that time, you know, would they be able to score goals in the Premier League? Would he be, in inverted commas, as good a player in the Premier League as he's been in the, the Championship? Uh, and I did the first season in the Premier League. Uh, it was very, very good for me as well. I made made a bit of an impact and then there was an opportunity for me at times to get capped and the home internationals were still on the go at that time and uh, some of the other guys from other clubs provincial clubs you know Willie Pettigrew at Motherwell and a few others they were all getting drafted into the squad for the home internationals where we played Wales Northern Ireland and, and England uh, and I'd spoken to Ali McLeod a few times on the telephone but the problem that Ali had at that time was that Really, the SFA committee who Ali put forward his squad and his teams to would not accept a part-time player on in the international scene. Uh, and at that time, before the home internationals, Ali wanted to bring me in and give me a couple of games prior to, to the squad going out to Argentina. And he, he'd say to me, you'll get to Argentina as a squad player, you know, because Dalgleish and, Dalgleish and Joe Jordan and these boys, they were all there. They were all in the pecking order well in front of me at that time, but you know, that, that gave me a spur when I was doing it Martin as well to continue to try to play well so that maybe I'd get in the home internationals and, and maybe even squeeze myself in into the to, to the, the World Cup squad for Argentina. As I say, once Ali told me back and said that the committee wouldn't allow them to take it wouldn't look good, you know, you know, having a part time player in the World Cup squad for Argentina. Uh, I started to really look at my own situation in regards to playing at Morton, you know. It was beginning to become a wee bit of a hindrance, the fact that we were part-time and, you know, really looking. And I was also looking to move on again. That's basically what I was trying to do. I was trying to keep my level of performance up, trying to keep scoring goals through that time, two, three seasons like that, to try and get a move. Because I said before, we were part-time. Other guys were coming in and getting the moves, Callum, but I didn't seem to be able to to get them, they were, you know, at that time the club were talking about quite a considerable amount of money for me, you know, and I think people felt that, even though I was still scoring goals and doing well, you know, it was probably just a wee bit overpriced. 
in terms of the nature of the situation you were in, not being able to move on, for even though you didn't move on, as I say, you're, you're remembered as Morton's greatest ever player. And <clears throat> in terms of being a Scotland international, that's something that you should have been. So many people within the game have told you that over the years, as you know. But you've also got the unique situation of being remembered as a football club's greatest ever player, which is something that many internationals don't get the chance to say. And something that I'm interested to ask you about is your superstitions. Lots of big players have got a routine before a game. Did you have any routines before a game in the dressing room? Uh, no, not really. I, I, I was a bit of a, a bit of a nutter when I was Um, you mentioned the. F- I talked to you there just about the fact that although you didn't become a full international, many full internationals can't say they're the, any club's greatest ever player. Even though some of them have been absolutely top class players, what are your main memories at Morton, and how proud are you with the esteem that you're held in down here in Greenock? Because whenever anyone mentions your name to a Morton fan, you just see their face light up immediately. It's always amazed me that Callum. Enjoy it. 
But then again, I always enjoyed my time down there. You know, I used to just enjoy being around about the place. Enjoy playing. I tried to seem to appreciate what I was doing. I was lucky enough to be, be in a position in the team to be able to score goals and try and create goals and do things like that. I tried to entertain as well. Uh, I had developed my nickname at Capolo was Huggy Bear. <laughs> for people of a certain vintage will know, know who that was. Huggy Bear was a character from a television program called Stafsky and Hutch. He was a black gentleman and uh, he was one of these super cool dudes uh, that they had over in America at that time, you know, who involved in everything and did everything, but was just all so laid back it wasn't true. Uh, and that was the nickname that the boys in the dressing room had given me. And that was the way I, I tried to adopt it. I was always in total, complete command of what I was being, you know. Even although I wasn't. Trust me, I wasn't. You know, there was sometimes it was it was a struggle for me to go up out of bed to come down because of my condition and everything else. And hmm. Sometimes I wouldn't be in so flow all the time. But the only place I've ever felt comfortable in my whole life has been out in the football park. As soon as I crossed that white line, all this stuff, 24-7 before, was just left behind. And I always tried to play football that way. I could, you know, I've suffered, as I said to you before, through panic attacks when I was 14. But people used to say, oh, he's the coolest finisher in the game. He has awareness of what's going on round about. You take that half a second longer to make sure that he, he does what he needs to do. That was my style of play that I'd adopted in the light. So, you know, the, the only place that I ever felt really comfortable was on the park. And I always felt comfortable at Capolo. And I think that sort of came through in my football from time to time. I remember, I remember an, an article being done. I think it was done by my old pal, Chip Young. And I hadn't been... And I remember that the game, we, we played Queen of the South at Capolo. And I had had about four of these situations prior to the game during that week. And it was a game I remember not participating too much in. <laughs> and I remember Chip did his article. He said, Andy Ritchie had a very, very quiet game. And that most of the time he spent wandering about the centre circle of Capital County and the seagulls on top of the cow shed. And I remember at that time reading that on the Monday evening in the evening times. And that had summed up exactly how I'd been at that time. You know, I couldn't, it was the only game I ever remember not being able to concentrate in and being able to, to get involved in the game uh, because of things that had happened previously the week before. Uh, and I tried my best thereafter for that not to happen again. But even now, even now, I'm 64 now and I can wander onto a football park and stand, even when there's nobody there, a public park even. And I can actually feel uh, something within me that I'm quite comfortable, I'm quite happy. I really enjoy being out there, even although there's nothing happening there, I'm too old to play for it, isn't it? <laughs> the only place I ever really felt as if I knew what I was doing. You mentioned that sense of feeling comfortable and confident when it came to being on the football park. See, when you leave Morton and you go to Motherwell, was that a move you made particularly because your family were Motherwell fans and it would have made them proud as well? Well, I had, the only thing I'd done in a previous contract with Morton was that uh, I had been a it. It was pre-Bosman. 
So, you know, contracts didn't really mean a great deal, but the second contract I signed at Morton that I put in my representatives that if we did drop out of the Premier League, I'd be able to, to move on if a Premier League club came in for me. So that season we'd been relegated. I had to play particularly well, I've got to admit that. Uh, but Jock Wallace had made an inquiry at Motherwell for me, and I'd spoken to him during the close season. Uh, I'd met in Germany with him, and you know, we had a chat, he asked me to come to Motherwell, and I'd agreed to come to Motherwell. Uh, Jim McLean had made inquiries at Dundee United, and Hibbs had made an inquiry as well, but Motherwell were the first ones in with money, you know. And I quite fancy going to Mullow, like you said, there. I was a Mullow supporter as a kid. I like Big Joke, I like Big Joke Wallace, uh, the time that I spent with him, you know. Uh, people would say to me that uh, me going to Mullow was Big Joke liked good football players. He just didn't like them in his own team every so often, you know, so I might not have a very good time out at Mullow. But uh, I'd went to Mullow, I had, had a Catholic operation done when I got there. He had missed it a fair bit of the season at Capelo because he bothered with my knee. And I had the cartilage done and I missed a bit of the pre-season. Uh, and then managed to get in the team and then, unfortunately, Big Joke went back to Ibrox in his second spell at Rangers. And uh, the next manager in at Motherwell didn't uh, want me there. And I found myself, if we going in the summertime to Christmas time, being sort of unwanted at Motherwell. Uh, well, the manager that followed him in was a guy called Bobby Watson. Bobby Watson didn't fancy me at all and let me let that be known to me in the first day of training. Uh, so I found myself in the position again of being unwanted at Mullow and never getting a game in the team. And uh, by that time, uh, my own personal situation and the way I felt about things was, was getting worse as well. I really should have went and got something done about it then. If I'd known then what I know now, I would have done something about it. But you know, at that time... My mental health was so bad, so bad at that time that, you know, chucking football at 27 years of age was was a, was a big, big alternative for me at that time. I felt that if I could do that, start something new in my life, I would feel as bad as I felt for that year, year and a half. Yeah. There was no way I could go with it. I certainly couldn't go to the club and tell them. I certainly didn't want to do I didn't want anybody to know how I felt, Carl. That was the problem. I was dying a wee bit inside and didn't know what to do about it. Uh, and I left Motherwell, sorted out a financial settlement with them and left. And I think two weeks later I decided I'd never play again. Uh, and I felt that if I could go, I had a young family to look after, I had things to do. I thought maybe changing my life might very well help how I felt. Uh, and I made that decision. We were around about the July, August time and started to, to work for things outside the game. I went to Albion Rovers for a wee while, about five or six games, just to... I was actually waiting for a job coming up in London and I did that for about five or six weeks. And then left Albion Rovers, came outside, the great big bin outside where they ran the dogs, greyhound racing at Albion Rovers as well. And there was a great big metal bin outside for collecting up what the dogs had left behind. And I lifted the, the lid of the bin that day and I put my boots in it. And I decided that at 27, that was me finished. I wouldn't be playing any more football. Uh, 
shortly after that to work. But I, it was the type of thing that, when I look back at it now, you know, I, I wish I'd have been brave enough to, to really confront what was going on in my life at that moment in time and do something about it. I wish I could have found the strength to, to speak to somebody about it. Uh, but it just, in society, it wasn't the done thing at that time. And also as well within football, it just was an absolute no-no, totally and completely taboo subject. You'd have been dropped like a hot potato. You know, that would have probably finished my career quicker and bad performances. Uh, mental health issues, you know, it was a, I got on with it. You've got nothing to bother yourself about. That was a, you know, that, that was a concept to what people thought about it at that moment in time. It was a, it was a bit of a slight on you for that to be happening to you. Medically, I couldn't do much about it as well, you know. Uh, doctors and, uh, well, it just didn't seem appropriate to speak to doctors or people about it at that time. And really, you know, that decision was made to me. Footballing decision was made to me because of how, how my mental health was more than, more than anything else at that time. See, when you retire at that age, Andy, you may, you've given the great story there of opening the bin, putting the boots in and thinking enough's enough. Um, do you fall out of love with football at that point? And I probably had done for about a year previous to that. Uh, was, my situation was getting worse yeah, and, I, and, and I was find, finding it very difficult to, to keep on top of it. Uh, things just weren't the right I, had, I was drinking too much and in my own mind it was, it was probably I was, I was self-medicating through alcohol at that time uh, don't get me wrong I quite enjoyed it but I didn't enjoy the I didn't enjoy the hangovers and everything else that went along with it it was affecting everything in my life the times for the spells that I was drinking I felt a wee bit better because of that uh, but the time that I wasn't drinking, I was a hundred times worse. So I, I developed that. I had, I had football was becoming difficult. And never in my life before, when I was fourteen, for started to play, had it ever been difficult. You know, certain situations could have been a wee bit more difficult. Certain times you'd have butterflies in your stomach if you were playing a game of football. But, you know, I was struggling to get out of my bed. I was struggling to get to places. I became, I was late for things. I never turned up for things. I was, you know, if I felt uncomfortable with something, I'd just walk out and leave it. I'd offer no explanation to anybody. I developed this reputation of, uh, how can I put it? A reputation that I didn't really want. I didn't really want people talking about me like that, you know. But did they talk? that way to your face, they spoke behind your back. I developed this set of circumstances that I didn't particularly like myself. Uh, and, and I think of the piece that had really worn me out. A bad situation at Motherwell had let me down again, but you know, but basically my, my myself let those situations then because I hadn't confronted what was really happening in my life. Uh, I was like the I was like the guy with the plates there was a hundred of them all spinning round about. For so long I'd been able to keep all these plates spinning. But now I wasn't. My situation was getting worse. 
you know, and I, I, I couldn't keep all the plates spinning at one time. And as it normally does, it doesn't get any better. Until you do something about it, until you confront the situation and really sit down and see what you want in life and see what you, you think. And also as well, I was a horrendously selfish person as well. You know, if it wasn't for me and it didn't suit me and it didn't, you know, I, I didn't do anything. I just shied away from doing all these things. And that, that's not conducive to, to being a football player, a professional football player. Uh, so basically the game was was pushing me out just as much as I was losing out in it as well. You mentioned the fact that that lots of things, yourself feeling in football, losing out there. See, when you go to London, was that fresh start the best thing that ever happened to you mentally as well in the sense that a new adventure away from Scotland, away from the football you were used to and in a new life? Yeah, initially it was. In respect to that, because I'd, I'd gone down, I still kept in contact with the football. I used to go and watch Neil Orr play on a Saturday at West Ham. And then the following week, I'd go across to Chelsea and watch Big Joe McLaughlin playing at Chelsea. So I was still going to the football every weekend and still keeping in contact with the boys and, you know, going out to see Neil after the game or going to see Big Joe after the game. And they would come out to my place. I had a flat in the barbican. They would come in and see me. And I still kept in contact with football, but. The job that I went into, uh, yeah, I enjoyed the first maybe 18 months to two years. Uh, I got to about 29, 30. And then, just like these things normally do, one day I went to open up the curtains in my flat and I looked out and, and just all of a sudden it struck me. You know, this isn't a kid one, I'll never play football again, you know. Uh, and I remember thinking, God, as if I'd only went to London for a couple of years to, Allow myself to feel better to come back again. It's too late by that time, you know. Uh, and within a very short space of time after that, you know, I wasn't getting the same amount of enjoyment of working and, and living in London again, you know. All I had done was, well, I basically only transferred the problems that I'd had up here and taken them down and had a wee bit of respite down in London from them and you're not come back into my life again. Uh, and... Then I had to make a decision after that, you know, to make a decision whether uh, I would stay down south and do what I was, was doing or, or whether I would move up back home again. I decided to come back home. Foolishly again, I decided to because, you know, I was beginning to... After, would you believe after two and a half, three years, I was beginning to get a bit homesick, you know? Uh, but my condition was coming back in again. I was struggling, struggling with the work and the work situations and living down south loving with the family still with a load of friends and what have you but it just didn't feel the same to me anymore and uh, I come back up home so I think as I said there what all I'd done was I'd transferred the problems for you I've got a bit of respite and they all come back in again something that I find interesting about you is the fact that you retired early you went down to London you got a job out with football and then as the years go on, you get back involved with football. You get involved with football in the sort of coaching and scouting side, uh, especially at Celtic, Aston Villa with John Gregory and also at Manchester City. What were those experiences like and how much did you enjoy being able to go to games, scout players, report back to clubs and managers? Because I imagine for yourself, that was something that you really enjoyed in terms of taking lots of games in and, and getting a real love of the game back um, as well. 
Yeah, I've always had that when I was back home again. When I come back to London very quickly, I met an old pal of mine who was manager at Hamilton Ackies and he invited me over to coach at Hamilton Ackies, uh, Jim Dempsey. And I spent some time with Jim uh, and got a wee bit of the feel back for the game again. That was that was initially I'd, I'd went on to coach at Love Street with Jimmy Bone for a wee while and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it, but the the, the actual coaching side of things, coaching's only a poor substitute to playing the game, uh, and I always got that feel of it. It, it did enough for me. I, I liked it. I loved playing football, but I wasn't in love with coaching. Uh, so my time at, at Love Street. Tony Burns, who I'd known very well, was manager back at Celtic again and they invited me to, to join him at Celtic Park when he went for Kilmarnock. Uh, and I did. I went back in for a short space of time. I was I was coaching at the start with Tommy at Celtic and then he asked me to do a couple of jobs on the scouting side and I did. I went out and done the jobs from Gooten. I think the first job I ever done was Gooten. Cast an eye over it young Dutch striker called Pierre Van Hoydonk who played for Mac Breda. Uh, that was one of my first jobs and I did an R couple for Tommy. And then Tommy asked me if I'd join his recruitment staff full time. Which I was only too pleased to do at that time and, and and that was great. That was absolutely fantastic. You know, I was busy, I was involved. Uh, I loved it. I loved the scouting side of things. Very quickly, I, I was comfortable with it because I thought I did have no bad eye for what I needed. Speaking to Tommy and being as close to him, I was getting an idea of what he wanted and we were able to bring in players that were making a difference. Um, Tommy left, Bim Janssen came in for a wee while and I developed a nice relationship with him at that time and worked as his chief scout and then did that with Dr. Joe Venglosh and we brought some good players into the place and, you know, Made some money for them and changed things round about. Won the, we won the league that year with him. Weren't as successful the following year with Joseph. And then when Kenny came back in again, Kenny Douglas came in with John Barnes. Kenny wanted to bring his own team with him for Liverpool. And he, he moved me on. He didn't renew my contract. And I went to Aston Villa. I worked as a European scout for four years down there. And then went out to Derby County a few years after that. They were all great, great times. I really enjoyed that type of work. It was a different place, a different set of circumstances, working with different players, bringing players to clubs, trying to make teams a bit better, develop relationships with people, the management team and everything else. Uh, it was very good. My, my working life at that time was very good. My, my private life was shocking. It was a... a it was a tale of woe from start to finish. My drinking habits had materialised themselves as well, you know. were gave me major problems at that time. Uh, and my mental health was shocking. Absolutely shocking. But, you know, the only time I was happy when I was at my work, when I was doing something, uh, and, and being productive that way. So the actual footballing side of it was, was, was magic. And I've always managed to keep myself around about the game. I've worked for other clubs. I worked for a while at West Ham and then went to Manchester City and did other jobs like that, you know. And they weren't as good as the, the, the first two. Celtic Park and Aston Villa were fantastic. 
they were really good. The other jobs where I don't know whether it's just down to me and the way I was living my life at that time wasn't as enjoyable. Yeah, but I've always managed to, to do that and I've always thought I had a wee bit of a, a wee bit of soft spot for, for, for scouting football players, for being able to see who can play and who can who's going to be good at what we need yeah, and, and try and bring them to the to the, to the clubs that I work for, you know. Celtic Park was really Fergus McCann had ripped the place to pieces and we needed to start all over again. So the Pierre Van Hoydon, George Cagetti, Paolo Di Canio, Mark Reaper, you know, these these boys all coming in were all new and fresh to, to Celtic. They're all big names and Celtic Park was changing at that time. You know, moving on with Dr. Joe and you know. I would love to have said I'd had something to do with Henrik Larson coming to Celtic Park, but I didn't have him brought him there himself. And you might not want to answer it And that's okay Have you ever had a chance To manage or coach at Morton? Have I ever asked that question again please? Have you ever had the chance To manage or coach at Morton? Down that day and spoke to, 
to Douglas and there was a, another gentleman there as well, I can't even remember his name. And that long ago, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I don't know. Uh, about the, the managerial job. And well, needless to say, I never got it. <laughs> and I was asked again by John Wilson, who had bought Morton at that time. I'd spoken to him. We had never met, but we spoke together. Morton were playing Hamilton Ackies when I was at Hamilton with Jim Dempsey. And we spoke outside in the car park. He introduced himself. I'd never met the man before. And uh, he asked me if I'd like to come down and become involved at the club again in the coaching side. Alan McGraw was manager. And I had said, yes, I would. If everything was okay, I would, I would like to come back down again. John Wilson went ahead. He owned the club. He did all the deal. I spoke to him. He got it sorted out. I was just under the impression that everything had been sorted out properly. I turned up, invited me down for a board meeting at Chapel. And I turned up for the board meeting. They will meant the board meeting. But the only thing that John Wilson hadn't done was John Wilson hadn't spoken to Alan McGraw about it. <laughs> which would have, you'd have thought would have been the number one priority. And he... Uh, we got through the board meeting that night, and I'm yeah, fair play, Alan McGraw, great man, fantastic fellow, I love him dearly, a very honest man, and he was that night, he said to the board that night that he didn't want Andy Ritchie as his coach, in the week I think, he said, oh, I don't want Andy Ritchie, if you're giving me a coach, I want to bring Jackie McNamara, senior in as my coach, I don't want Andy, nothing against Andy, I just don't want him here, uh, well, did they know I'd already signed the contract with John Wilson under the, under the impression that John Wilson had spoken to Alan McGraw about it. So we came outside, me and Alan stood in the bit at Capo underneath and had a chat about it. And Alan was, as I say to you, perfectly honest about the whole thing. He couldn't have been any more honest. Uh, and I stayed down at Capo for about six months. Well, basically doing nothing. Uh, hanging about the place for a wee while. And I left after that. So, yeah, that was twice. I, I had an interview for the manager's post, which I didn't get. Uh, Douglas didn't give me. And I had a... I think, they, I think basically they were looking for me to be assistant manager to Alan because I think John McMaster was there at that time. Yeah. And Alan had said, no, he would rather have Jackie McNamara. Fair play. You know, that shows you the standing of the man. Have a great saying in football, Callum. You've got to be able to give... The bad news out just as well as you can give out the good news. Everybody wants to be the bearer of the good news in football. My bad news that night was that Alan could have went along with that and kidded on that he was quite happy with it and went through it. And he probably could have done that, but his honesty wouldn't have allowed him to do it. And he admired them for that. I still admi admired them well before it. And I still admire him to this day. A, a, a real true man, true football man, true Martin man, true gentleman. And that night, even although it went against the grain for him to, to be giving me that news that night, standing outside Capital, it was the mark of the man that he did it. He was able to do it. And thankfully, for me especially, thankfully we've kept our relationship ever since then. Great stories. Thanks for, for sharing that. And I'd like to finish, Andy, with a round of quick-fire questions. The first one being, what's your opinion of the game of football now in the modern day? Uh, well, it's changed. I don't know about that. 
the rich have got richer, and unfortunately, the poor are either holding themselves together or got poorer. Uh, championship at this moment in time, I was quite impressed with the championship for the, the stuff that I watched last year. We've been down at Capital, uh, seeing Mark at home and, and seeing some of the teams that come away, you know, who are participating, the likes of Alawans and Abroth that come up this year. I'm really impressed with these two teams, you know, two good wee football teams. There's certainly not as many personalities about in the game. You know, and I, I know that's uh, me poacher term gamekeeper a wee bit there, you know. I would like to see a wee bit more individualism attached to the game now, you know. But maybe the game just doesn't dictate that you, you're allowed to be, uh, to be playing the game that way now. Uh, I like a lot of it. There's a lot of it I don't like. You know, there's a lot of stuff that, I think there's a lot of negative play attached to the game now. You know, the adage when I started playing football in the late 70s was you only pass the ball back if you couldn't pass it forward. You know, I watched the game then, I think, God, I would, have been, I, would have been, I would have been even lazier than what I was. You know, somebody gives you the ball, you automatically give them it right back again, and they give you it back, and they give you it back. There's a lot of stuff goes on like that in the game which frustrates me a wee bit. Uh, it doesn't allow people to, at times, go on and have to produce the safe thought, the safe option is, is much more prevalent in the game now than people being asked to, to go forward and, and and take the game forward and be productive with it. Entertain people a wee bit as well. Don't be afraid to fail in the final third of the park. Don't be afraid to have a shot at goals. Don't be afraid to take people on. The great players that we've had over the years would not have been great players if they hadn't have done that. You know, if the Jimmy Johnsons of this world and the Henrik Larson's of this world and the Brian Loudrops and everybody else that we've seen before didn't have that adage to their game, you know, their game wouldn't be as good, you know. Sometimes I think we take the safety option a wee bit more because, well, managers don't seem to hang about, or the vast majority of them don't seem to hang about too long now, so this great adage of results are everything in the game has totally and completely engulfed it to a certain extent. So I do miss a wee bit like that. I do enjoy watching good football. I like to see I like to see people trying to play and people trying to win the game. That'll always be a, an adage in mind. Uh, in, in general, in general, it's not too bad, and I'll be absolutely delighted when we get it back up and running again, Callum. Because <laughs> it's been a long, long time since I missed football as much as I miss it right at this moment in time. <laughs> Me too, I, I totally agree with that The sooner the, the better, but obviously it's got to be safe As we both agree um, First one, uh, and the second one, sorry The quick fire, who would you say was the best player You played alongside? Uh, the best player I played alongside <clears throat> Jimmy Johnston oh, Great answer Jimmy Johnston towards the end of his career I would, was, Some of the some of those, Jimmy had been in the reserve team for a wee while when I came in, so I played about a season with him in the reserve team when I went in at first. And Jimmy was a magician, an absolute magician. I remember one day playing a game early on in my reserve team career when we played a broth at a broth. It was the early season game. And, you know, myself and Brian McLaughlin spoke all the way back down to a broth again, all the way back down to Celtic Park about wee Jimmy. I would love to have played alongside Jimmy when he was 21, 22. At that time, he was nearly 30, you know, and uh, his career was diminishing a wee bit, you know, but playing with him in the reserve team was probably... Ah, he's, 
he's the most talented. Jimmy, Jimmy would have been a success if he'd chosen to be a goalkeeper or a centre-half. Football just oozed out of him and he just wanted to play the game and he just had so much excitement. Even for a reserve game at a broth in front of 200 people that day, he wanted to put on a show. And what a show it was. I'll never forget it. It's probably... And, you know, the games that I did play with him, didn't always play well in them, but it was it was different. It was great. It was just a joy. You could give him the ball and wait a wee bit and get it back off him again. And, you know, he just wanted to play football and entertain people. In terms the of best player I ever played against, <laughs> the best player I ever played against was a pre-season friendly when I played a game at Celtic Park. I was only young, and we played Preston North End. And I played directly opposite. I played as a right half and he played as an inside left. And it was a 32-year-old Bobby Charlton. Wow. And I played 90 minutes against him in a baking hot day at Celtic Park, my pre-season friendly. He was a player manager of Preston North End that season. And I didn't know whether my backside was bored or screwed at the end of the 90 minutes. He showed me everything that you need to be in a football player. Beautifully balanced, two great feet, could pass the ball, could header the ball, could run, could tackle. He, could, he did a lot that day against me. And I remember coming home, I was only 17, coming home in the bus from Celtic Park with my dad. My dad was a man of few words. And he said to me that day, coming home in the bus, that's what fat was all about. And I sat looking out the window all the way back out to Glasgow to be also that day thinking, God, I hope every game's not going to be like that. I'll never have a career. I'll never do anything in the game if I have to play against that every week. And he was another one. Imagine playing against him in 1964-65. I watch the old things that are on YouTube now and a wee bit of the football that comes on every so often. He showed me everything that day at Celtic Park that you need to know about being a football player. Who would you say, we've talked about best you've played with, best against... Who would you say was the most underrated player that you played with? Because you know what it's like. Every club's got a player that, for whatever reason, is an unsung hero. Uh, one in every club, Callum. Uh, probably every club that I've been with, played with, had one in it. I remember at the start at Celtic Park, I mentioned the guy's name earlier on, Jim Brogan. Jim Brogan just typified what it meant to be a player at Celtic Park. Uh, I wouldn't say he was the most talented football player I ever played with or played against, but his attitude towards the game was absolutely first class. He couldn't keep Brogy doing, didn't matter what was going on. He drove the team, he was the engine of the whole team. Uh, even in the reserve team, he did the very same thing with the very same commitment in the reserve team as he did in the first team. You know, I really admired and looked up to Brogy for that. He just wanted everybody else to play well around about him and at times would sacrifice his own game for that. He wasn't always a fan's favourite, uh, but he gave a hundred percent playing for Celtic every game that he played in that I was in about anyway. He was just that type, you know. And other guys that I played with as well, you know for me at Capolo, Jim Holmes was the, the most underrated player. Jim Jim Holmes should have had a glowing career at other clubs. We need disrespect to Morton or Jim Holmes. He had enough ability to do that. He's probably the best left back uh, 
in Scotland when I played down at Capital. The gym was an engineer up in the Rolls Royce. My dad worked with him. Uh, all the time he was at Capital. Great professional. Great guy. You know, he went on to captain the club. Spent I think he spent 12 years with Capital. The level of his performance was always an eight, sometimes more, never less. Uh, that was the type of player he was. And great admiration for him. He was a fantastic professional. And that was a part-time professional. You know, what a, what a professional he'd have been on a full-time basis. I always thought that Jim Holmes would have been a great coach for young players. Jim knew, even at that time we were down there at Capelo, Jim knew everything there was to know about the game. You know, if you needed to ask anything, or I needed to ask anything, I asked Homer. Because Homer knew. And he was a sensible guy, good living guy, knew what he was doing. And became a friend at that time when I went down there. And thankfully, to this day, he's still a friend. He was the most underrated player I played with at Capelo. Last question I've got for you, Andy. I've really enjoyed this, to be honest. Um, is what if you could, if you were playing now and you could choose any manager in in world football to play under, who would it be and why? That's a good question. Here you go. I'll do that one. And Alex Ferguson. I would love to have played under Alex Ferguson. I don't know how it have went, but I would have loved to have played under Alex Ferguson. I remember at one time at Aberdeen that Mark McGee told me, you know, he wanted, he'd been talking to Mark about bringing myself and Jim Tolmey to Aberdeen at that time. And I remember thinking, I think I'd quite like that. Now, Mark used to tell some stories about him, you know, he used to. I, I, I like to cut it up. I like to fact that, you know, he kept him on their toes. And I like the fact that he was a bad loser, you know. He liked to win football games. That appealed to me as well. His career was in its infancy then, you know, at Aberdeen. But the things he did up there. And then obviously when he went to Man United, and as I say, the rest of history. And I've watched it all, all my years going along thinking, I would love to have played under you. It might not have been a success for me, but... I would have liked to have spent some time running about that, you know. I remember thinking to myself at the time, I think I, I might have been in London at the time. I mean, no, before that, he signed Eric Cantona. Nobody knew who Cantona was. And then they found out a wee bit about him and it was hard work and, you know, he had to fit him into the Manchester United team that didn't suit and he was building a team and he built a team around about Cantona. So I thought to myself, that might have been a situation that would have been nice for me at Aberdeen. You know, if we'd have got up there and they'd built that run about, he knew how to handle that fella. He knew how to get the best out of him. He knew how to go around about it. Maybe, maybe if I'd went to Aberdeen, maybe he'd have been the type of guy that I'd have been able to sit down and talk to. Not just about football, too. Maybe about other things in my life that weren't going right. Because he, he did have a big personality, you know. And I, he did, I think, was a, basically a decent, honest guy. You know, he came across sometimes as being, up here at Aberdeen especially, as being a bit of a lunatic manager, you know, but he knew what he was doing. And the boys at Aberdeen swore by his loyalty. You know, he gave him a hard time, but he only gave you a hard time if he liked you. If he didn't like you, you were on your way. 
you only you only gave a hard time to the people that you thought weren't working hard enough for him. And I sometimes think that if that had been the case, I might have maybe went to Aberdeen with him at that time and he might have been able to help me not only in my football career but in other things in my life as well. I just want to say, Andy, it's been a fascinating chat. I've enjoyed, we've talked mental health, we've talked Morton, we've talked playing the game, coaching, scouting and much more. It's been an absolute joy and I, I want to thank you for being on the podcast, but I also want to thank you for being a true gentleman. I've had the, the pleasure of speaking to you, obviously, hospitality um, and, and a couple of events over the last year and every time I've spoken to you, you've been an absolute gent and I'm just so delighted to have you in the podcast. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Tom. Thanks very much, my friend. God bless. So we'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave, and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song. We'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave, and our shells will.